when you're a journalist and people don't trust you, it's always your fault. These people need to be represented. They are Canadian. They deserve to have a voice and a seat at the table. It is time to go back to the office, and the time is now. Russia had reasons to be concerned. They had reasons to be fearful. We're at an absolute turning point in reproduction. This is the problem with realism. They just treat all countries the same. They don't distinguish between dictatorships and democracies. Hello, Monk listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, your host and moderator. Welcome to this, our continuing conversations called The Monk Dialogues. These are in-depth questions and answers with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers. We go deep into the big issues that are transforming our world and shaping our future on each and every Monk Dialogue. Well, in 2015, the world's leaders attempted to address the major problems facing humanity by setting out the so-called Sustainability Development Goals, a compilation of 169 targets to improve life around the world, all to be achieved by 2030. On this Monk Dialogue, we're joined by Bjorn Lomborg, president of the Copenhagen Consensus, who argues that the current strategy is running far behind schedule and failing to deliver results. The goal now must be to narrow down this ambitious set of targets to a few high-impact, low-cost solutions that can end world hunger, eradicate killer diseases, and educate children from all walks of life. Bjorn Lomborg, welcome to the Monk Dialogues. Hey, it's great to be here, Roger. Thank you. Yeah, so nice to catch up again. I it's been um, almost a decade, Bjorn, since we were together in Toronto for the Monk debate on climate change. A memorable evening. Uh, so much that's happened in the last 10 years. So I'm really looking forward to catching up with you and learning about all the different things that you've been working on. So let's start with Bjorn Lomborg as of February 2023. You've got a big new project underway. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. Well, so this project is really, and I think a lot of people will be slightly surprised about nothing about all the other stuff that I've been talking about, about climate and all that. This is about the smartest things to do for the world. So I, I think a lot of people don't really know that uh, over the last seven and a half years, the world has promised something called the Sustainable Development Goals. We basically set targets from 2016 up to 2030 saying we're going to fix everything in the world. We're going to fix climate change, but we're also going to fix war. We're going to get peace. Uh, we're going to get everybody out of poverty and everybody out of hunger and everybody off of diseases. And you know, we're going to make you know, green spaces and in inner cities, and we're going to get everybody to recycle. And the whole shebang. So we basically promised everything. We have 169 priorities. And when you have 169 priorities, you really don't have any priorities. And so what's happened is we're now halfway. So 2023 is halfway. And we can now see we're not going to make it. Not even close. I mean, it's kind of obvious we're not doing the peace part of it. Uh, it's also quite obvious we're not doing the climate part of it. But we're really not doing any part of any of these. And so what we're trying to say is, look, instead of promising everything and failing at all of this, maybe we should start talking about are there some really, really smart things where we could spend not too much money and actually achieve great impact? And the short answer is, yes, there is. We come out with 12 things that the world should do fairly cheap, and it'll do an amazing amount of good. So these are uh, kind of high impact, um, 
then what's the other variable? Low cost, low organizational complexity. What's the sweet spot that you're trying to aim for? So it's really well-proven stuff. So it's stuff that we know we can do, even if we are likely to not do it incredibly effectively. Uh, so this is not sort of a, oh, if we could all do this really well, then it would work out. This is stuff we already know. So you know, take, for instance, uh, uh, malaria. Uh, malaria still kills about 600,000 people every year, almost in, exclusively in Africa. We know how to fix a lot of this. We're not going to fix all of it. And, and again, none of the things that I'm going to tell you about here will sort of fix everything uh, because that's really, really hard. But we know that getting insecticide-treated bed nets out to people is a great way to reduce the malaria burden because you have fewer mosquitoes. They can't get to you at night. But also when they sit on the net, they actually die. Uh, and so they transmit a lot less malaria. And if you run the models, we could save about 200, almost 200,000 people from dying each year just by putting up more nets. And we know how to do that. A again, you've probably heard these stories. Well, some of them, some people are going to use them for you know uh, uh, bridal nets instead, or they're just going to put them up somewhere else, or you know, use them as fishing nets and stuff like that. We're assuming that people will do just that. You know, that they will waste some of it. Some of it won't work. You'll put it up wrong, just like we've done with all the others. But even then, even if we do all of this in, in a sense, not too well, we know that because it's a very cheap intervention for every dollar spent, and this is the, the sort of metric that we use, you can actually save so many people and you can also make them more productive that for every dollar spent, you will deliver $48 of social benefit. That's a fantastic outcome. And so again, our argument is simply to say, why don't we, along with all the other things, you know, we should, we should still try to do all the really wonderful things that we want it to do, but maybe just first do these 12 amazing things. And the, the trick here is the total cost of these 12 things is about $30 billion a year. That's, that's not nothing, but you know, remember that's a, you know, that's a rounding error in most other things that we spend money on. Just to give you one example, uh, we spend about $100 billion globally on, on uh, um, makeup. Uh, you know, so, so maybe, you know, maybe we can afford uh, $30 billion. And the benefit would be that you would save about 4.2 million kids every year and you would generate benefits, and this is almost exclusively for the world's poorest half, so about 4.1 billion people, you'd create benefits worth about a trillion dollars. So economic benefits worth a trillion dollars. So save four million lives and generate a trillion dollars in benefit, which is about 10% of their GDP right now. That would be an amazing achievement, and we can do that for $30 billion. So our point is simply to say, why don't we do these incredibly smart, cheap things that we know how to do? Right. Give us a couple other examples. Mosquito nets is a great one. Uh, what are a few of these other low-cost, um, high-impact outcomes that we could drive through a program like this? So education, obviously, is one of the big things in, in all kinds of ways. It's also a big thing in, in the rich world. We all feel like we could do better in education, uh, but especially for the world's poorest. So it's almost half a billion uh, uh, kids in low and low middle income countries, which is where we're looking, that basically go through primary school that is often terrible. 
It's terrible in many different ways. You know, there's just barely a classroom. There's lots of kids in each of these classrooms. The teacher is often not very well prepared and not very well educated, him or herself, perhaps even. Uh, and so the question is, how do you deal with this? You know, we, we managed to get all kids in classrooms, which is great. That's still a big achievement, but they don't learn very much there. Uh, you know, one uh, study, so we do a lot of tests of these kids, uh, and one study uh, is where you try to see, do they actually, can they read and understand? Because we've gotten everybody to be able to spell through words. Uh, but So one test here for a 10-year-old is, BJ has a red hat, a blue shirt, and yellow socks. What color is the hat? And unfortunately, 80% of these, the, the right answer is red, by the way, but, but you know, 80% of these kids can't answer this question. So they can read the individual words, but they can't string them together. Of course, you're not actually going to be able to pull yourself out of poverty, pull your country out of poverty, become productive citizens of the world if you don't learn how to do that. So there's a couple of really interesting ways how not to do it. And then there are some incredibly good ways how to do it. So unfortunately, Indonesia is the one that has actually tested both of the really bad ways to do it. Uh, so they decided uh, to double the number of schools across the country, which of course is a nice thing. Uh, and it cost a lot of money and it made it easier for everyone to go to school. But nobody learned anymore. So we, you know, done the study. Not we, but you know, researchers have done the studies. Turns out there's no impact of that. They also doubled, or almost doubled, the teacher pay, uh, and and because we could actually do uh, studies because they didn't do it in the same regions all at the same time, you could actually see it had predictably an incredible effect on teachers. They were much more happy, but it didn't change the learning of the kids at all. So this famous paper is called uh, Double for Nothing. You, know, you double the, uh, the amount of spending, but you don't actually get anything on the, uh, the indicator you want. However, there are some really, really great ways to do education that we are then advocating. It's basically two things. One, you can try to make the teacher better. The other one is that you can try to teach the kid better. The first one is really about structured teacher plans. Again, Remember, all of these teachers are struggling. If you have every year before you start, you have 10 days where you walk them through, what are you gonna be teaching this, uh, this semester or this year? And then you give them structured teacher plans where you, they can see, oh, okay, I have to go through this that week. And then you send out text messages. Well, you don't actually send out text messages. Right? You do it electronically, but you send out these messages and say, so this week you're gonna do this, this, and this that actually dramatically improves their efficiency in teaching. They're probably still not terribly good. The schools are probably still somewhat bad, but what happens is, and we have good evidence for this, that you can, for very little money, so we're talking about $15, $20 uh, per, per pupil per year, you can actually make each one of these kids learn twice as much. So it's like they go to school one year, but they learn two years of schooling. That's an incredible outcome. And this means that when they become adults, they will be more productive, they will be, uh, uh, have higher incomes, they will drive their economies, and this is basically incredibly good for the economy. Likewise, if you look at some of the other things, so how can you make kids learn better? Uh, one of the things that I think we are all struggling with in schools is you have all the 12-year-olds in the same classroom, right? 
So they're all learning at the same grade, but they're widely different, especially in developing countries. Right? Some kids have no clue what's going on. Some kids are incredibly bored and way ahead. And then the teacher is basically trying to sort of find a middle ground where he or she is at least teaching some of them. Imagine if you could teach to each individual kid's specific actual learning level. And there are two ways you can do that. You can either separate them into learning levels or, uh, and I'm just going to tell you this other one, uh, they do that in India, for instance, or you can give them a tablet, one, so an iPad, essentially, one hour a day. So they're going to be sharing this with many other kids, right? Uh, that's one of the ways to bring down the cost. So one hour a day, you sit in front of this tablet. This tablet very quickly establishes, oh, you're one of those smart kids who are already way ahead or you have no clue what's going on, right? And then adjust the learning to that exact level. So suddenly the kid is actually learning as if he or she had her private teacher. That increases their learning. So just doing that one day, uh, sorry, one hour each day, that over the year, means that they learn three times as much as what they did before. So they'll actually learn three years of learning for one year in school. Now, again, it'll still cost. You, you have to get you know, uh, reliable power, so you need solar panels probably. Uh, you need to have a, a locker so they don't get stolen. Uh, you need to have this you know, organized so that they can actually use it. There's lots of these studies. It's not cost-free. It'll cost about $27 per kid per year. But you get a huge benefit. What we find is, on average, if you take all of these, and different sort of solutions will work for different countries, if you spend a dollar, you'll deliver $65 of social good because these kids will become much more productive and much richer once they get to adulthood. How, how come we're not doing that? Why are we focusing on all kinds of other things as well? Why are we not doing the very most effective on education? So let's go to that point. Uh, if you want to look at a big, bold uh, objective that we've set for ourselves, it's this concept of net zero. Some countries shooting for zero carbon emissions as early as 2030. Others maybe quixotically thinking that another 20 years is going to help uh, with a 2050 net zero target. Bjorn, you know that those types of ambitious sweeping goals seem to command a lot of public attention. They seem to capture our imaginations for better or worse. So what's going on here? Why do we tend to gravitate away from maybe these smaller, highly impactful, lower cost solutions towards grand design, uh, grand theory, and uh, these promises of sweeping systemic change? So I think part of it is because there's different we's involved here, uh, right? So if you've, if you've already fixed education, you get a pretty good education. If you've already fixed malaria, then you start worrying about climate change. Look, I'm happy somebody is worrying about climate change. We should also be considering climate change, and rich countries can actually do this. I, you know, for a different conversation, I still think we can do this much smarter and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, fundamentally, this is also a problem. And, you know, we're an advanced civilization. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. So we can also focus on climate. But I think in the way that we talk about the world, we get these few really, really big things that we're talking about, like, you know, let's all go net zero. And that's going to cost, you know, uh, uh, the sort of standard studies from Bank of America, McKinsey, you know, those kinds of estimates show this is going to cost five or six trillion dollars a year. Uh, 
I'm going to argue that we're probably neither going to finish this, we're not going to spend the money well, we're probably not going to deliver all that much benefit from it, but the real point here is to say we should still spend some money on climate and actually try to fix it smartly. But surely if we're going to talk about spending five, six trillion dollars a year, we could spend 30 billion. Remember that's what uh, that's one two thousandths of that cost. You know, surely we could find that. That's not true. I, and I, I was really bad at math. It was one two hundredth, right? So less a percent. We can certainly spend that money and find a good way to do that. But the point here is to say we should stop talking about as if there's just one problem in the world or if there's just one problem that the rich world cares about. If you're a poor person, if you live in the poorest half of this world, your main concerns is the fact that your kid might die tonight from an easily curable infectious disease, that they don't have enough food, that they don't get good education, that there's corruption, there are all these other issues. And I'm not saying that should sort of blind us and then say, oh, then just don't care about climate change. Again, we can do many things at the same time, but at least we owe it to the world not just to suck up all the oxygen with climate change and a few other things. It seems to me that you know when you talk about this and you then say, we should do more than climate change, people will then say, ah, plastic straws, right? Or you know, we'll go on to some of these other things that's very first world issues. And sure, but you know, again, one, one of the things that we find uh, in, in this project is that we should also remember most people don't die from infectious diseases anymore you know, because we've eventually we've eradicated in the rich world and we're pretty well on our way to eradicate most of it in the uh, even the poor world so we increasingly die from cancer and heart attack there's a lot of great things that we can also do for that we're basically again saying you can do this very cheaply in the in the poor world but again one of the amazing things that i think we've totally underappreciated is in the rich world we have basically made people die a lot less from heart disease because we got those cheap pills. I don't know, there's a good chance that you're on them. I'm, I'm certainly on them. A lot of you know, older uh, uh, people in the rich world are on these. You know, it basically lowers your blood pressure and it makes it much more likely that you're gonna survive another six or seven years. Those pills are incredibly cheap. We should make sure that those get out to everyone. But again, you can sort of see why, you know, one set of the people who are arguing about climate change can sell Armageddon. That's a lot more fun than Bjorn sitting here and rattling a, a, a pill cage and saying, but we have cheap pills. But you know, in a world that can actually walk and chew gum, we should also do the cheap pills. So in your conversations with people in the developing South, what are they saying to you? Because the, the message through the media often is that their concerns are also these big macro concerns. Uh, you've talked about you know climate being one of them. The you know, endless procession of COP conferences that we have that demand a lot of public attention, um, maybe rightly so. But the result, I think, is a perception here in the developed West that the developing South is largely aligned with us on what our priorities are for helping them. You think that's, give us your assessment of that. So I, I think there's two things to that. One, obviously, you know, if you come and rattle a, you know, a, a bag as we did with climate and say, would you like $100 billion a year? Uh, you know, most countries will say yes. <laughs> uh, uh, when they then realize, well, we didn't actually mean that we we're going to give it away. You know, we'll, we'll sort of you know, 
cook the books until it looks like we gave you $100 billion, they get a lot more annoyed. Not surprisingly either. So there, there's some sense of this. You know, uh, we worked in, in Malawi uh, last year, uh, and they, you know, it's one of the poorest countries in the world, uh, and they have a lot of the budget is being determined by rich Western development organizations. And so not surprisingly, Malawi is very attuned to what it is that, you know, Germany and Canada and everybody else actually want to do with their money. Now, given it's their money, it's perhaps not unreasonable that, you know, that you have to listen to what they also want. These are taxpayer money after all. Uh, but I think, you know, we need to also recognize that Malawi have some really, really basic issues, like, for instance, with education. They're now actually rolling out the thing I was just talking about with the iPads uh, across their entire uh, 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 entire primary school. And one of the reasons is because of these analyses that show it's an incredibly effective policy. But it's hard for them to raise the money because a lot of Westerners come and say, but don't you want help with your methane leakage from your garbage dumps? And, and you know, in the big scheme of things, yes, we would like that too, and that'll give us some energy, and that's good. Yeah, most of these proposals are not bad. It's just a question of saying, do you want to do a little good for your dollar or a lot of good for your dollar? But I think there's another way in which we're very much misrepresenting them. You know, so most people in the developed world, sorry, in the developing world, want to get out of poverty. Yeah, and they want their nations to rise. So we work with Bangladesh, one of their main focuses was that they wanted to stop being a low-income country, and their goal was we want to become a lower-middle-income country, which you know I, I think most people probably have no idea. That means going from sort of like $2 a day up to now they're at $7 a day. That's an incredible achievement, and of course it means you can suddenly afford more food for your kid. You can afford to make sure that they get an education. You can get a lot of the things that we take totally for granted that's what comes with the $7 per day. But, and with all that said, let's also remember in developing countries, just like here, politicians have to get your vote or at least get your acceptance if you're in a more sort of dictatorial state like China or something. You, you've got to do stuff that actually resonate with people. And so you end up making some of the same proposals. You, you make things that sound great, that make everybody say, oh yeah, I want one of those instead of perhaps saying, what do we know works? And so what we're saying is, these are some incredibly effective policies. They might not be terribly sexy. They may not be the best things that you want it to solve, but this is what science actually knows work. This is what economics can tell you for very little money, you can fix a really huge important problem. And so again, when I go to developing countries, they're often like, but, but what about, you know, peace? What about, you know, climate change? What about corruption? All these sort of different things. And we have partial solutions to some of them. Uh, just to give you on the, on the corruption rate, right? corruption probably costs about a trillion dollars a year. Uh, so, and obviously we don't know because, you know, it's, it's, it's in the black economy, so it's an estimate. Uh, but, you know, it's a huge problem. Uh, and we don't really know how to get rid of corruption in most places, but there is one thing that we do know. So most developing country spending goes to procurement. Uh, so basically, you know, the government buying, uh, you know, stick it notes and uh, pens uh, all the way up to roads. And obviously the roads matter a lot more because they're much, much more costly. So it's almost half 
of, 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 of public uh, spending that goes to procurement. Procurement is incredibly corrupt. Not surprisingly, you know, you have a lot of money going through very few uh, hands and you can basically influence it and get a lot of money out of it. Uh, so in Bangladesh, for instance, it turns out they have this, you have, you have to hand in a, 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 a bid uh, to the government for, for this particular road or whatever it is. But in reality, they, the, the ruling elites have already decided who's going to get it. And so they put up goons outside the office where you have to hand in the, uh, the, the bid. And so you can't do it. What turns out, and this has been known for a long time, but we still argue there's about, you know, uh, uh, there's about uh, uh, 40, about 40 countries that still haven't done it. Um, you could do e-procurement. So essentially do procurement, but like on eBay. So you, you bid it out and everybody can bid in everything. It's much, it's very cheap to do, and it makes it a lot harder to do corruption. You'll still be corrupt, but slightly less so. And what we find is this can save you somewhere between half and $3 billion a year if you do this well. And it costs you know, peanuts. So what we're arguing is you can't fix all of, of corruption. You certainly can't fix some of the really, really great corruption that we see on TV and stuff. But here is a structural proposal that for very little money can do somewhere between $100 and $300 of good why don't we do that first? And actually, when we when we showed this to Bangladesh, the finance minister was, I love that, you know, partly because it would actually make him about $700 million every year because he could do this uh, cheaper and then spend the money elsewhere. He would have to take a battle with a lot of the people who would no longer be getting all the, uh, you know, the sealed envelopes. But, you know, they've actually achieved much of it, not all of it, but much of it. So again, we give, if you will, practical things that can be done. They're not all of it. They're not going to solve everything you care about, but they are going to deliver an amazing amount of good at very low cost. Hey, Monk Podcast listeners. I wanted to let you know about our other weekly audio program. It's called Friday Focus. And hey, guess what? It comes out each and every Friday. It's half an hour long, and it provides you with a masterclass on international events, all the big issues and ideas shaping our world. We've got that for you each and every Friday here at the Monk Debate. Simply access via our website, www.monkdebates.com. Click on Friday Focus in the top right navigation. You'll get all the details or check out a sample of the program in the same podcast feed as the main Monk Debates podcast. I hope you'll join us for the next edition of the Friday Focus podcast. Now back to our program. For people listening, uh, they may have in the back of their mind um, those that phrase, the Millennium Goals, uh, which were you know set out by the United Nations as, again, um, supposedly important um, benchmarks to kind of measure uh, progress when it came to development across a variety of, of sectors. I think the, the consensus was that the Millennium Goals fell well short of promise in terms of the ambition and then the reality. How is what you're talking about different than the Millennium Goals and what do you think the learnings could be from that experiment with this idea of, you know, targeted metrics that are moved incrementally by 
you know, primarily NGO groups, civil society, um, you know, and, and state donors. So, so it's, it's a great example with Millennium Development Goals. They were set from 2000 to uh, 2015. That's really why we have the Sustainable Development Goals. Remember, the UN has made lots and lots of promises before. We probably promised uh, a full and free education about 20 times from uh, the 1950s and uh, up to the 2000s, uh, and we never achieved them. In 2000, we then said, now, we, we really, really mean it, and we almost managed to do it. Uh, there, there's no doubt that part of what we promised would have happened anyway, so it's not like the Millennium Development Goals just sort of magically solved everything. And as you pointed out, we didn't also manage to do all things that we promised. For instance, we promised that we were going to reduce child mortality uh, by two-thirds, and we only managed to reduce it by half. But, you know, that's still, we went from 12 million kids dying every year to 6 million kids dying each year. That's still 6 million too many, but it's amazingly much better than 12 million kids dying. So we did actually manage to achieve quite a lot of it. And some of this was because of the Millennium Development Goals. They were set basically by uh, Kofi Annan, who was the UN Secretary General, and a few other guys in a back room. And these were all guys, actually, um, in, in 2000. Uh, and, and, and so there were 21, but we really only cared about nine of them, or, uh, so, which is also a fun story in and of itself. But fundamentally, those very, very simple ones, so you know, get people out of poverty, get them out of hunger, stop kids from dying, stop moms from dying, uh, and get better education. That's fundamentally it. That was very, very easy. We poured in a lot of money, but you know, compared to everything else, we spend money on still not all that much. And it gave an amazing amount of benefit. You know, so for instance, on vaccinations, we vaccinated a lot more. That probably saves about 2 million kids every year. So of the 6 million kids that we're saving, uh, that we saved over uh, that 15 year period, probably a third of these savings came from vaccinations. You know, just get rid of measles. This, this is again, not rocket science. So you can do this very, very pointedly. And I think what happened was everybody felt this is wrong to have a couple of guys sit in the back of a room in the UN building, uh, put up all these uh, targets. We should have everybody involved. And I, I applaud the, uh, you know, the intent. But what happens is when you ask everyone, what do you think should be the priority? You get everyone to say everything. And so we ended up now promising everything to everyone all the time. There's no way we can afford it. We're not going to do it. And we manifestly are not doing it. And so what I'm saying is, let's go back to promising less and promising it smarter. Now, I still have some you know, qualms about some of the things that we promised in, in, uh, and the uh, Millennium Development Goals because they were not based on what's most effective. It was more sort of what feels like we really should do something about it. And what we're saying is, let's do the stuff that actually does the most good. So for instance, for moms and, 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 and babies, one of the things, and this blows my mind, um, every year about 300,000 moms still die in childbirth. Now, it used to be that childbirth was really, really dangerous, but it's no longer so most places in the world. But in the poor part of the world, it still is. And every year in the first 31 days of a child's life, 2.1 million kids die. That's an amazingly large number, and that's a terrifying number. And you know, it has lots and lots of implications. What we find is, and so this, this is the amazing thing, there's an incredibly cheap way 
to deal with this. So it's basically called BMOD. Uh, that's a terrible uh, uh, short for, I, and I can't quite remember it, but it's basic, basic emergency obstetric and newborn health care. So it's basically making sure that you have very simple things. This is what World Health Organization are, 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 are arguing for. Most kids are now born in hospitals, but most of these hospitals don't have these very basic uh, uh, things. Why? Because it's, it's no fun to have these basic things for, 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 uh, for uh, newborn children. It's much more fun to have the machine that says pling, if you've ever seen that Monty Python uh, skid, right? But yeah, where, where John Cleese think the only important machine in the room is the machine that says pling, because that's the expensive uh, you know, uh, 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 machine that all the doctors like. And of course, that's it's it's a parody. But you know, there is some truth to the fact that we we like this sort of edge of the research uh, 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 part much more than these sort of basic things. One of those things that we should have in all hospitals is a little plastic bag that can uh, uh, that can get children to uh, start breathing. I didn't know that before I, I started looking at this, but it turns out that every twentieth kid in the world, this is all in, in rich countries, when they come out they don't breathe at first. So you have to actually you know, hit them really hard in the, in, in the back, and then they, you know, most of them will start. But 1% still won't. And then you need this little tube that you can actually get them to breathe, and then they survive. If you don't have this tube, and it costs about $25, it won't survive. Every hospital will probably survive about, or uh, save about five lives each year for this $25 thing. Why don't we have this? And you know, this is just one example of all of these things. So what we find is for about three and a half billion dollars a year, we could save 160,000 moms from dying and we could save 1.1 million kids from dying. This just sounds like, you know, this sounds like Christmas Eve. We should be doing this. And again, not so sexy as all these other things you talked about, but again, just one of those many examples of things that for little money will deliver an amazing amount of benefit. So I'm simply saying, when we're getting together here in September in, in New York, and everybody's gonna be you know, saying, wow, we're halfway with the SDGs and we've done nothing. Maybe, that's not true, we've done a little bit, but not very much, right? Maybe we should say, all right, we should still commit to doing everything because we're good people. But let's first do these amazing 12 things. Let's just spend $30 billion a year on this a third of what we spend on cosmetics, and then we'll actually have fixed an enormous amount of benefit for the world. I think that's a pretty obvious shoe in first. So Bjorn, how is this project going? Are you raising money from the general public? Are you working with international foundations? To what extent have, been, have you been able to translate these ideas into actual efforts kind of on the ground to deliver these kind of high impact generally lower cost solutions to, you know, life extending, productivity enhancing um, policies and ideas uh, as you've just enumerated. Yes. So f f the, the first thing is to recognize that we're, we're academics. So we, we don't, we're, we're not out there and actually making sure that here is, here is one of those plastic things. We're trying to get the information out so that everyone will spend their money smarter. So we're, you know, we're basically about getting this information out. You're actually the first uh, podcast where I'm really talking about this. We are 
just about to start publishing this, so we've done absolutely nothing so far. We're hoping that a lot more people will have heard about this in half a year. So we're going to be publishing uh, 13 articles, so an introductory article and, and on, one of, on, on each of these 12 ideas, in a lot of the world's biggest papers around the developing world, so in, in Kenya, in uh, 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 Ethiopia, in Nigeria, in India, in Bangladesh, in, in Indonesia, many other places. We're also hopeful that we will get some of this out to rich countries, but again, you know, we're sort of like, yeah, tuberculosis, been there, done that. Uh, you know, we're, we're not nearly as, uh, as enthused about these things, but I'm hoping that we can get this conversation going. And what I think, so I'm also writing a book that will be out in a couple of, of months that will basically tell this story. And I think there's a lot of people who want to find, how do I do good? And the point here is basically to say, there's a lot of ways where you can do a little good for a lot of money, and then there's a few places where you can do a lot of good for the same money. And I think most people get the idea, we should do that first. So I'm hoping that we will all pressure our governments, we'll all tell our politicians, we'll tweet all these things to get people to do a little more of the smart stuff. I, I'm, I'm grown up enough to know that, you know, just because I say this is a good idea, it doesn't mean it's suddenly and magically gonna happen. But I think if we put out these 12 amazing things where you for little money can do all this amazing stuff. It'll become a little easier for governments, for NGOs and everybody else to do this. So obviously we're working with a lot. So you know, we're saying for instance for tuberculosis, for every dollar spent, you'll do $48 of good. Not surprisingly, the Stop TB organization that, you know, this is their goal. They're like, we're great. Yes, this is a great study, and they're going to be pushing that, and likewise for malaria, likewise for most other of these organizations. So, of course, there's a lot of organizations out there who love it, <laughs> just because we're saying, you know, they're doing really good stuff. Uh, but I think this has the opportunity to make it a little more likely that we'll actually do great stuff. And, and again, you know, we have a saying here at my, my think tank, uh, you know, we're, we're economists, we're rationalists. We, I would love the world to do all the smart stuff. But, you know, in reality, we're not going to do that. So our goal is not to get it all right, but to get everything a little less wrong. You know, if we could actually move the needle a little more towards being smart, I, I, I would consider that a, a, a wonderful achievement. In the last couple of months on this podcast, we've had uh, William McCassell on, one of the founders of the effective altruism movement. There's a lot of what I'm hearing from you, Bjorn, that seems kind of synced up with effective altruism. Am I right to put those two things together? And it seemed like a natural kind of constituency for your research. And I, I know Will as well, and, and we certainly agree on a lot of things. I think the, the main difference is probably that the uh, uh, effective altruists uh, there, there's one very big methodological difference that they don't want to discount the future. So, you know, if you ask most people, do you want a dollar today? Or uh, most people don't care about a dollar. Do you want a hundred dollars now or a hundred dollars in a year? They'll take the hundred dollars now, right? Which kind of makes sense because in a, in a year, who knows sort of thing uh, for a lot of different reasons. And we'll also be richer if you ask the same thing about a hundred years, you'd probably, you know, definitely take it. Uh, and, and this basically means money and things that happen, good stuff that happens is more important now than it is in the future. Uh, the effective altruists uh, believe very, very strongly that actually everything is equally matterful all the way out into infinity, which has this awkward situation of saying that we don't really matter. All that matters is the 
billions and hundreds of billions of people who are going to be living, you know, tens of thousands of years from now. I, I, I can't quite visualize it. Uh, and, and, and of course, it, it kind of means that we should just be saving up for those guys. We should not spend anything on ourselves. We should just do everything for the future. That's why they're very worried about existential threats, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and to me, that's just not a correct representation of reality. That's just not how we are. I think it makes for great conversation. I think they have a lot of fun things. You know, for instance, one of the things I, I love about Will is, is his way of saying, you know, people give a lot to uh, dog and cat shelters, but the most animals that suffer everywhere in the world are, you know, cows and pigs that we have in our, in, in our uh, uh, in, in big, big farms. And, and, and the reason why we care about the cats and, and, and dogs is a little bit like what we talked about before, because those are the ones that are in our mind. We don't see newscasts about all these others, but of course we need to recognize that. So I think they do some great stuff, but in, in fundamentally what we try to do is much more sort of nitty gritty into the reality of right now rather than talking about how we're gonna save uh, mankind in a hundred or in a thousand years. I, I love that they're there, but, but in that way, we sort of, uh, you know, spread our, uh, our efforts into different areas. Yeah, fair enough. I think, in my mind, what links you both is this idea of potential, right? And that there is vast amounts of human potential in the present, in the moment, which is going wasted uh, across this planet. Children who are never identified as the, you know, remarkable scholars that they are. And they never, they never go on to careers that allow them to make the contributions that arguably for the likes of William McCastle and the effect of altruists could secure the very future that they would like us, you know, not to discount going into, uh, you know, into the millenniums. I agree. It's hard to think of. It's very sci-fi, but um, thank you, Boone. This has been a fascinating conversation. Congratulations on all your work. We're going to keep an eye out for um, uh, your book and, and uh, the specific kind of outputs of your think tank as you move through these Big 12 uh, solutions. So we'll share that information with our Monk members as it becomes available. And again, just great to catch up with you again and uh, touch base. I really enjoyed this conversation. Roger, it was great to talk to you. Thanks. Well, that wraps up our dialogue today with Bjorn Longborg. I want to thank him for coming on the program and giving us a lot to think about and an optimistic message about how we can, with a few focused priorities and principles, we can achieve worldwide change. If you've enjoyed this Monk Dialogue or you've heard things on our other Monk podcasts that have sparked your curiosity, please send us an email. We'd love to hear how we're doing. Our email address is podcast at monkdebates.com. That's M-U-N-K, debates with an S, dot com. And also a reminder that you are invited each and every Friday to join us on this podcast feed for our Friday Focus program. It comes out, yes, every Friday. Focuses on the big issues and ideas transforming our news. We break them down for you in 30 minutes or less. You can check out what Friday Focus is all about on our website, www.monkdebates.com. Thank you for lending your time and attention to our efforts to bring back the art of public conversation, one dialogue at a time. I'm your host and moderator, Radio Griffiths. The Monk Debates are a project of the Aurea and Peter and Melanie Monk Charitable Foundations. Rudyard Griffiths and Ricky Gerowitz are the producers. Be sure to download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts 
And if you like us, feel free to give us a five-star rating. Thank you again for listening.